Let me just give you a little bit of background about um, Daryl, the church, and things like that. Um, Rock Valley Bible Church, as many of you know, we started 10 years ago in a, in a Bible study. Um, but it was, it was about seven years ago that we really started. I was sent from Kishwaukee Bible Church up here to, to plant um, Rock Valley Bible Church. Um, but Kishwaukee Bible Church started from a church called Grace Church of DuPage, which is in Warrenville. And I think that started maybe 13 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that. And uh, so Daryl Worley is a pastor at Grace Church of DuPage in Warrenville, uh, a church that I really owe my life to. It's a church that really impacted my dad, really impacted me immensely. Um, because of that church, I went to seminary, moved back to hometown. They sent a bunch of resources to Cal to plant a church, and I'm here today as a testimony of the ministry of Grace Church of DuPage. Now, the reason why Daryl's here this morning is because he, he became a pastor at, uh, at, at Grace about three years ago. Daryl told me three years ago this February, so it's been there a little more three years ago. And it was about a month in, I remember, Daryl, I called you and I said, Daryl, you don't know me. My name's Steve Brandon, and I'm, I'm at Rock Valley Bible Church, which is planted from Kishwaukee Bible Church, is planted from Grace Church of DuPage. And um, I just want you to know, I would love for you, whenever you settle down, I mean, got church, I'm not sure how big, 400 people, something like that. Whenever you settle down, there's a lot of people you need to know, a lot of things you need to put in place. But as soon as you want to, I think you come out here and you preach for us. When you come, I'll sit down. And you preach, and I think that you would be encouraged. So that was three years ago. And then, you know, we see each other probably twice a year or something like that at kind of <clears throat> various gatherings, or we go into church there sometimes or something like that. And I, I might be wrong. I think every time I see a Daryl, I think I've said, Daryl, the invitation's open. You just, whenever you want to come, I'm sitting down, and, uh, and you come. And uh, so finally, it was maybe two months ago, he said, here, I got an idea. I think you take this week off, kind of a home vacation, and said, I'm going to be around Warrenville area. I'm with this work, and I said absolutely without a question. So, um, Daryl has uh, decided to spend today with us, and I'm glad. And here's here's my prayer. My prayer is that Daryl would be encouraged by the ministry of Grace Church, that it extends here, and I, I hope even his encouragement might even you even think about just what we would long to see at Rock Valley Bible Church is a, a ministry that extends even beyond us. And uh, many people at Grace Church don't even know us, and, and that's okay. But that's, that's what God's kingdom is about, is about giving time and resources and prayer and efforts to see it, to see it disseminate and, brought, and carry abroad. So that's my prayer in my heart for Daryl. I know he'll encourage us, the word, but I'm praying for him to be encouraged especially. So Daryl, why don't you come and open the word for us. Well, good morning to you. It's good to be with you this morning, and I've honestly already been encouraged just by meeting a few of you. There's connections in the body of Christ wherever you go, aren't there? We have met uh, met some already that we've known from previous places or that know places that we know and uh, already feel very much at home. What a privilege it is, though, to think of the common background that we have uh, all linked through the work of God in a particular place. Um, and uh, my prayer for you is that that church planting vision uh, would continue on. And uh, someday Steve will be visiting a granddaughter church uh, in some location. Uh, but uh, pray for us that that vision continues for us at Grace of DuPage as well. Uh, that God would continue laying on our hearts the desire to see new bodies of believers planted in different locations. And uh, the gospel spreading by that means. Responsible handling of the word, proclamation of God's truth, 
as the centerpiece of the local church and of the relationships within the body. So it is a real joy to just be together with you today. I think we're going to stay for a potluck luncheon afterwards. That's always a nice thing as well. Get to meet a few of you there and, uh, and then to fellowship with the Brandons a bit this afternoon. I want to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. By the way, I didn't even mention uh, Gordy and Ruthie Bell. We were with them in their home just a few weeks back, maybe a month or two ago now. I can't remember exactly what the date was, but uh, here's some other Grace Church of DuPage folks that we've come to love dearly with just a few uh, opportunities to be together, but uh, certainly appreciated uh, being in your home recently and, and enjoying the fellowship of the gospel in that place. So. We have been studying through the Sermon on the Mount at my church, and we've been enjoying it very much. Uh, just uh, moving slowly through Matthew chapters 5 through 7 as Jesus delivered this very familiar sermon. Some have wondered if it's a standalone uh, sermon or if it's a collection. I honestly believe it is standalone because it is such a, a rich construction. The flow of thought, so good, uh, a nice introduction, a strong body and a good conclusion, all that which a good sermon uh, produces. And by the way, kids, you've got a great set of notes there. I, uh, I thanked Pastor Steve for those uh, when he showed me what was there. Uh, I need to let you know I haven't started on those notes yet. I'm going to set this in a little bit of context for you so you can appreciate what's going on. And uh, then we'll pray together, and then I'll get started in earnest with the notes that you have, all right? Just so you know. Uh, maybe a couple other hints I'll throw your way as well, since I know that, uh, that you're uh, meticulously planning to study God's Word together. What an encouragement that was to see the kids come up and get their notes and a clipboard. That is a great education, kids. I hope you don't uh, just get used to that and take that for granted, but that you learn to study the Word of God in that way. Take advantage of opportunities you have to do it. Let me give you a quick overview, though, first of where we're, what we're going to be doing in Matthew 7. And um, it's a passage of Scripture that particularly touched my heart as we uh, went through it just a few weeks back at Grace of DuPage. But it really it sits in the middle of the context of the Sermon on the Mount. And it's helpful to know where you're going in this passage in order to appreciate more fully what's being taught in that paragraph uh, of Jesus' teaching. This really is a sermon that is talking about the values of the kingdom of heaven. Those patterns of behavior, those lifestyles, those values and character traits and qualities that ought to be present in true disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus. And so he opens up the sermon with a very familiar passage there in Matthew 5 with what we call the Beatitudes from a Latin word, beatus, blessed, happy, really. We don't like that word happy too much, but it's one of the best words to to translate blessed. Blessed, happy are the poor in spirit. Blessed or happy are those who mourn. That sounds like happiness to me, doesn't it, you? (laughs) When you're in mourning, don't you describe that as true happiness? Well, Jesus is talking about a different sort of happiness, a different sort of blessedness, isn't he? He's talking about the blessedness that comes from being in right relationship with God. And he gives a list of eight states of blessing. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, who understand that they are in abject need before God and there's nothing they can do for themselves to set them in right relationship with God. 
There's nothing that they can do personally that will commend them to God. Blessed are those who mourn. That means blessed are those who emotionally feel the burden of that poverty of spirit. That there's a God in the universe and I can't have a relationship with Him on my own. That is the pathway to true happiness. Understanding that there is a God and that He has set the rules on how to come into relationship with them. That's where Jesus starts. And it progresses. He gives through that first 16 verses there of of Matthew chapter 5, the character of true kingdom dwellers. This is what true followers of Jesus look like. These are the character qualities that they have. They're familiar passages. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. There in verse 13 and following. Um, Just captivated by the life of Christ and shining that light of Christ out into the darkness of this world. From verse 17 on, then, we have what we could call the conduct. The conduct of true kingdom dwellers. What they do, how they act. You can see that that starts with a very familiar, very powerful verse of Scripture uh, that most of the Scriptures intersect through. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets, Jesus said. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill everything that the Old Testament law and the prophets look forward to. That's talking about the very specific prophecies about the coming Messiah that appear in the prophets. But it's also talking about the anticipation of the one who will set us right before God that is even present in the law. The law itself speaks with a prophetic voice looking forward to Jesus. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one. I'm the one it's been pointing to. I'm the one who is finally going to set you right with God. I'm the one who's come to embody all that the law and the prophets were anticipating. And then he proceeds through the remainder of the chapter to tell us what that looks like when we put that into practice, when we come into relationship with one like that, when we follow the promised one of God. It has something to do with with how we deal with people whether we are angry and have murderous thoughts in our hearts, whether we have lustful, self-gratifying thoughts in our heart. It has to do with marriage and divorce and understanding that in godly and, and biblical ways. About speaking the truth in verses 33 and following. About not retaliating against those who mistreat us in verses 38 and following. About loving our enemies not just our friends, in verses 43 and following. And then chapter 5 ends with, you therefore must be perfect. Perfect. That your heavenly Father is perfect. We can understand back in verse 20 that he's talking about a kind of righteousness that ought to be characteristic of God's people without which they won't even enter into the kingdom of heaven. If you don't have this kind of righteousness, righteousness that surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, righteousness that surpasses the most righteous people that were known in the day that Jesus was preaching, unless you have a righteousness that surpasses those, you won't even enter the kingdom. How pure and clean a righteousness does it need to be? You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. If we remember where we began with poverty of spirit and there's absolutely nothing we can do to commend ourselves to God, we're in a desperate state, aren't we? We are in a desperate state. Well, the passage continues on in chapter 6 to talk not so much about conduct as about motives. Now, 
about praying with God-honoring, God-focused motives, about giving with God-honoring, God-focused motives, about fasting with utter dependence upon God as our supplier and our provider, doing it in the privacy and secrecy of our own heart, recognizing that what matters most is that it's God who's watching when we are giving or praying or fasting. We don't do it for public acclaim as though that's the only benefit we're going to get from it. And boy, that's worth thinking about, isn't it? Oftentimes we give thinking, hmm, I wonder, wonder how impressed they're going to be with the amount that I gave. Oftentimes we pray, especially publicly, thinking, oh, I hope I can find the, just the right eloquent words so that people will think I'm spiritual. When we fast, we fast as those idolaters in the land of Canaan did before their God, seeking to force the hand of the deity to deal favorably with me. Rather than just saying, this much I long for you, O God. I want to want you more than I want food because you are more precious to me than the richest of foods. You are more satisfying than the finest of foods. So chapter 6 talks about motives. And then it talks about single-minded devotion. A very familiar and famous verse by the time you get to the end of chapter 6. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all of these things that you're inclined to pursue in this life, all of these other things will be added to you as well. Don't worry about them. God is your provider. Seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, this surpassing righteousness, this kingdom of God about which He's been preaching. Make that your highest priority, your, your central focus, your, your heart's desire. Set your hearts on that. Put your treasure there because where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Your heart follows your money, not vice versa. We get that backwards in the world. If my heart's really there, well, then my money will follow. No, put your money somewhere. And all of a sudden, you're paying very close attention to what goes on there. Your heart follows. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Invest in the kingdom of God and entrust all other matters to Jesus. And trust them to their, your heavenly Father who has promised that He will supply all of your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the setup. That's the setup. And now we're ready to look at Matthew 7. Now the attention is being turning, turned toward righteous relating with people, righteous relating with God, and some other matters as you head toward a conclusion of this sermon that begins um, in really verse, verse 13. You finish it though with verse 12 there. Do you see that one? Another familiar. The golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Jesus started saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And he finishes the body of this sermon by saying, here's how you embody the law and the prophets. Here's how you live according to this standard. And it brackets it, an inclusio that tells us that this is what this sermon has been about. The law and the prophets being understood and obeyed. The standard of God being met by the way that only God can do it. And that standard can only be met as we follow Jesus This is pre-cross. We follow Him all the way to the cross and then we receive the offer that He made there. We receive the sacrifice that He made there as the basis of our relationship with God and as the basis of living this passage of Scripture.
chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Pray with me for just a moment. Ask that God would open our hearts and our minds to this text, and then let's work through it together. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this sermon of Jesus that shows us who we need to be and what we need to do. Father, glorify yourself, I pray, as we look at this passage and work it deeply into our hearts. Help us to understand and to know you through your word. And help us to realize, Father, that unless your word takes root in our hearts and reorients us in the likeness of your Son, that we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Cause your word to dwell in us richly this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it has been said by many that John 3.16 has been replaced as the most familiar Bible verse in America today. The new leader is Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Now, people don't oftentimes know where it is found. They don't know the reference, but they do know that it is there in the text. Judge not that you be not judged. That's the most familiar verse, quite likely, in our country today, especially among those who know nothing of the Word of God other than that it says that. You see, every moral and ethical splinter group in America uses this verse to claim divine sanction as they tell everybody else to get off their back and to stop condemning and to allow them their unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness however they define it. That's the way our world uses this verse. And it's increasingly less often, unfortunately, that Christians have a confident response to such a claim. We need to know how to respond to that because it's quite possible that whatever you face in your life, whatever situation in which you're sharing the gospel, wherever you feel the need to stand up in defense of true and biblical and righteous morality, that you will face this verse. Judge not that you be not judged. It will be used against you from God's Word. Is that what it's saying? Is God's Word telling us that we ought to back off from such situations? Just a few weeks ago, one of our leading presidential hopefuls named this passage as his basis for allowing same-sex unions. Not marriages, mind you, but same-sex unions. Here were the exact words. He said, if people find that controversial, namely that I accept this and support it, then I would just refer them to the Sermon on the Mount which I think is, in my mind, for my faith, more central than an obscure passage in Romans. Can you think of a single obscure passage in Romans? Can you think of an unclear statement in Romans? My friends, Romans 1 is neither unclear nor obscure in its condemnation of homosexual behavior. But that aside, neither does the Sermon on the Mount either endorse it or excuse it. This is an example of what I'm talking about. This is how judge not, that you be not judged, is being used in our world today. We need to take a little bit of a side here, I think, because we need to put it in context. We need to appreciate a bit of how it's being abused. Jesus didn't mean that when He taught it. 
And it would be great for us to dig into it, and hopefully we will in sufficient depth to understand what he actually did mean. But let's take just a moment. We must remember this, that freedom and morality are two different things. That is very important to keep in mind these days. We must remember that freedom and morality are two different things. They are closely connected, but they are not synonymous. We can see this in the Ten Commandments. Fully eight of the Ten Commandments are universal moral negatives. Thou shalt nots. Statements that begin that way. Limiting freedom. Now that's not because the law is negative or because it's restrictive, but because the fences need to be set up. Boundaries need to be established. Stay away from these things and all of the rest is freedom. That's the way the law was established. That's the way the Garden of Eden was established, right? Here's your freedom. Here's where you can run and play in the gracious relationship of God that you have with God. But stay away from these trees. That negative, that, that moral boundary is not a limitation of freedom. It's an establishment of freedom. There's a difference between these two. It's also the way our nation was set up, by the way. Our freedoms are rooted in and dependent upon the strength of our moral conscience in our country. They are built upon knowing the difference between right and wrong and pursuing what is right. That is absolutely essential to maintaining the freedoms that we enjoy in America. Understanding what is right and pursuing what is right. Rights were not given to protect wrongs. And we have to keep that in mind. As a matter of fact, we must be vigilant to make sure that this kind of error never takes hold in our land. That's part of what it means to be salt and light. The statement goes like this. America is great because America is good. And if America ceases to be good, America will cease to be great. Now that's oftentimes attributed to Alexis de Tocqueville in his, his book, Democracy in America, 19th century uh, French historian, political philosopher. But you know what? It doesn't appear in that book. It's quite possible that de Tocqueville never said that statement. But it's still a true statement. America is great because America is good, and if it ceases to be good, it will cease to be great. That means that if our unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness were intended as license to do whatever we please or to whatever pleases us, if that's the way it's understood, if that's the way it's interpreted, then we have already lost our freedom and we just don't know it yet. It just hasn't played out long enough to see that freedom has been lost. But if that were true, if the unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness means happiness however we define it, so we just pursue whatever we want to, if that were the case, then two other things would be true in our nation. Number one, we would not have a constitution because none would have been needed to spell out how unalienable rights can be defined and preserved and protected when there's more than one person present. Let me say that more clearly. A constitution wouldn't have been needed to define what we do when your unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness starts encroaching on mine. We wouldn't need a constitution if there weren't supposed to be boundaries establishing our freedom. The second thing we wouldn't need is a court system. 
because no action or activity or lifestyle would have required a verdict of right or wrong, of allowable or disallowable. But the fact that we have those tells us that there are boundaries to our freedom and those boundaries are established by morality. We must recognize how essential the goodness of America is to the greatness of America. Now, why would I take time this morning to talk to you about a subject like that? Is that exegeting the text of Matthew 7? Well, in a sense, yes, it is. It's exegeting it in our culture this day. Why do we take time? Because we must labor as citizens of this nation to protect its goodness. Why? Because our nation is inherently worthy of that effort from believers? No, it's not. That's not the reason. It's because of the gospel that we do it. It's for the sake of the gospel. The freedom that we have to proclaim the gospel in this nation is an expression of the freedom that we enjoy nationwide. And if we begin giving up our liberties because we want to grab liberty for ourselves, then at the very same time that we are actually cutting off liberty as citizens, we're also cutting off liberty as Christians to proclaim the truth. And we're cutting off the opportunity we have to continue sending missionaries abroad in proclamation of the gospel. We need to understand these things because as we forfeit liberties, we forfeit the opportunity for the gospel to spread with great freedom. Now, having said that, we can also see how the gospel uh, advances under persecution. It would just be a new day for the church. It wouldn't silence the voice of the gospel. But friends, while we have freedoms that protect the proclamation of it, we need to give ourselves to the preservation of those freedoms and to understand what makes them work and why and how. We must be salt and light, preserving our culture by shining forth the light of the gospel within it. That's our calling. So, yes, perhaps we are a bit afield from Matthew 7 and exegesis this morning, but that's a context I think we need to understand. Let's move on to the verses themselves and appreciate what Jesus is actually saying here. That's what he's not saying, and that's what it means for us in terms of acting as responsible Christians in our environment. But in the immediate context here, it's interesting to note at the beginning of verse 7 that there's no connecting word. There's no therefore or then or so that's present in the text. It just starts there in chapter 7. Judge not that ye be not judged. Because of that, some have suggested that there's no real link between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Matthew. There's no thematic flow. I just don't believe that. I don't think that's the case. As we're growing spiritually and especially as we're stumbling along in the early stages of developing humble and God-honoring motives, like we were talking about at the beginning of chapter 6, and as we're stumbling along striving to develop undivided loyalty to the kingdom of God as we're talking about in the latter half of chapter 6, it's at that point that life can start getting kind of hard. It's at that point that we can tend to be very hard on others who seem to be getting away with things that we're not getting away with. And that's the context that's established that causes us to begin judging others. They're getting away with something that I'm not getting away with. That's unfair. And we cry unfair. And we begin to judge. We begin to backbite. We begin to treat others in ways other than we would want them to treat us. 
we judge people even perhaps quite harshly. Well, Jesus gives us four words of instruction on how to address disputable matters, how to address such issues as that with our brothers and sisters, how even to address matters of evident sin in their lives when it can be very tempting for us to assume God's role as judge. And I think that's what this passage is talking about. Don't step into God's role. So four words of instruction. Let's look at them together. Word number one is a principle to pursue. A principle to pursue. It's there in verse 1. That principle, do not be a fault finder with others, lest God should become a fault finder with you. Ooh, that can give you pause, can't it? Don't become a fault finder of others with others, lest you want God to become a fault finder with you. The verb behind judge not there is a pretty, has a pretty wide-ranging meaning. I'm not going to cover all the possible meanings. One of the things, though, that it could mean is that what's being forbidden here is the actions of a judge in court. Legal action. Leo Tolstoy believed it to be the case. He didn't believe there should be any court cases for Christians. That's not what it's talking about. It could refer to a discerning appraisal of others' misbehavior. That's one kind of judging that we could be told not to do. But Jesus wouldn't forbid actions that he himself exhibits in verses 5 and 6 of this very same paragraph. He judges others at that point. So that's not what he's talking about. We can list a few other things. Let's get on to what I think he actually does mean. Jesus' call here is actually to not be condemning or condescending in our confrontation of evident sin or questionable behavior in others. Jesus' call is not to be condemning or condescending in our confrontation of evident sin or of questionable behavior in others. That's what he's teaching us. When there is evident sin, we address it in a spirit of gentleness, not sanctimonious shock. You did what? It's gentleness. It's poverty of spirit. It's mourning. It's recognizing that people still battle against a sinful nature and we're all struggling with sin. And we encourage one another in a spirit of gentleness. We bring one another along. We don't go soft on sin, but we don't slap it around either. That's... That's hard to do at times because there's something within us that wants to come down hard on people who are struggling. Harder yet, though, I believe, is when we see questionable or disputable behavior in others. And here, I think, is even more of what Jesus is talking about. When we see questionable or disputable matters, what do we do? Do we come down hard on them? No. There we must simply extend grace and allow for difference. And that's where I want to spend most of our time on this point this morning. Paul used this same word, you see, over in Romans chapter 14, verse 3. There he said, Let not the one who eats, and you know eating food sacrificed to idols was a huge issue at that time, first century, especially as the church was just beginning to grow and develop. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. What we're being told here is don't be a fault finder. Just don't be a fault finder with people. 
Don't pass censor-like judgment on the actions of others unless you're willing to subject yourself to that same judgment. This is strong. It's a strong statement. Judging in this way is equivalent to putting ourselves in God's place. It's equivalent to usurping His authority. We step into God's role when we do this. And God's saying, don't do it. Later in Romans 14, Paul says there in verse 10, he asks actually a question. Why do you judge your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Implication, God is the one who judges, not us. It's not our job. And in the same way, the Father promised to forgive. If you remember that from chapter 6, in the same way that God promised to forgive those who understand their need before God by being forgiving with others, now He's turning that around and saying that God is going to go hard on those who exhibit a lack of understanding of their need by going hard on others. It's just the flip side of forgive and you will be forgiven. Judge harshly and you will be judged harshly. It's not our job to press other Christians toward patterns of obedience that resemble ours, nor to condemn them if they don't go there on their own. That's not our role. That's not our calling. That's not our responsibility. It's God's job to shape the heart in the likeness of His Son. It's not our job to shape the hearts of others in our own likeness. Our obedience to God's Word will look as different from other Christians as our physical appearance looks different from theirs. Do you recognize that? We all have similar features, don't we? You have two eyes on your face, a nose, a couple of ears, a mouth. And yet, every one of us looks different, don't we? You look around the room and there's not really anyone here that you're going to uh, mistake for somebody else. I understand, Steve, why you said just uh, wear a shirt and tie Bother with a jacket. There's, there's none of us that look precisely like the person sitting next to us. That's an illustration for what our patterns of obedience to the Word of God look like. One single Word of God spoken with clarity and precision. God's expectations made explicitly known to His people through His Word. And yet... Different people with different backgrounds and different gifts and different abilities and different passions and different longings and different battles and different struggles. Their walk of obedience to that clearly established word will look very different. Very different. Judge not that you be not judged. D.A. Carson amplified verse 1 to read, Do not assume the place of God by deciding you have the right to stand in judgment over all. Do not do it, I say. There's the emphasis of that strong judge not. Do not do it, I say, in order to avoid being called to account by God whose place you usurp. That's the principle. Stay out of God's role. He's got it covered. Your job is to be gracious in pursuit of brothers and sisters in Christ. That's the principle to pursue. Word number two we'll get through a lot more quickly. It's a rationale to respect. A rationale to respect. That rationale, the harshness with which you judge others, God will apply when He judges you. Verse two. Let's look at it quickly. 
It's not just that God will judge us. You judge others, He'll judge you. The statement is He'll judge us harshly. He'll judge us mercilessly. I'm not sure verse 2 is telling us that God will judge us using our own standard. Sometimes it's understood that way. You use a harsh standard when you judge somebody else. God is going to use that standard when He judges you. I don't think that's it. I think it's worse than that, folks. I think it's, I think it's a tougher standard than that. I think He'll judge us using His perfect standard, but He'll apply it as mercilessly and unyieldingly as we applied ours. That is a little bit more chilling. Because I don't think our standard is going to be quite as high as God's is. But God is going to use His own standard when He judges, and He's going to judge mercilessly to those who show no mercy. James wrote about this very explicitly in James chapter 2, verse 13. It's a text worth jotting down in your notes. Judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Do you hear the counterpart? Forgive and you'll be forgiven. Judge and you'll be judged. Judge harshly and you'll be judged harshly. Because it indicates no understanding of your actual need before God. Later on in verse 12 of chapter 4, he added these words there in the book of James. There is only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Don't usurp God's role. This statement here in verse 2, with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's identified by R.T. France as a proverbial saying that occurs commonly in Jewish literature to, to indicate divine retribution. That's God getting back at us, all right? That statement is a very familiar image. So what Jesus is doing here is He's using, using imagery that's very familiar to these people. They would understand that. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That is in judgment or in blessing. So as we are judging others, the measure that is used there will be measured back to us. It's coming back to us from God Himself. We need to hear Jesus' words with all of their weight, with all of the weight that the first century hearers would have heard them. There's no way to escape if we set ourselves in God's place as judge. There's no way to escape His judgment coming back on us. It was D.A. Carson who said, Whoever poses as a judge cannot plead ignorance of the law. Do you hear? It's self-condemning. If I'm going to hold somebody to a standard, that standard had to come from somewhere, and I'm confessing my knowledge of the standard because I'm judging them. And God says, all right, there's no way to plead ignorance now. You've proven that you understand the standard because you're trying to hold somebody else to it. Here I come. I'll hold you to it. Let's see how you fare. Ooh, that's hard language, isn't it? Well, that's the rationale to respect. Let's move on then to a rebuke to receive. A rebuke to receive. And here we have a little bit of comic relief. This rebuke begins with a rather uh, amusing illustration. Look at verse 3. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? We get so comfortable with biblical imagery. Folks, stop from time to time and just picture what's going on here. Even seeing a speck, first of all, in a brother's eye is a pretty unusual thing, right? I mean, if somebody's got a speck in their eye, don't they usually come up to you and say, you know what, I I think i got something in my eye. Can you help me? We're talking about somebody who spots it from a distance. Gordy, 
Gordy, you got a speck in your eye there, brother? How am I going to see that from here? All right, so it's already kind of funny. But then we add this log, this beam, this plank of wood. The same Greek word was used for floor joists or, or rafters. All right? So we got this protruding piece of lumber coming out of our eye, and I was saying, Gordy, I think you got a speck in your eye, brother. Oh, friends, what a picture this is. I, I just, I personally picture this piece of lumber banging my brother in the forehead as I'm trying to get close enough to help him with his speck. Remove the lumber and the speck will be much easier to see. Bottom line, right? Remove the lumber and the speck will be much easier to see. A couple things we have to note here before we move on though. That's the picture. Let's understand a little bit of what it means, this silly picture, this silly image. Notice that there is a speck to remove, first of all. There is a speck in my brother's eye. There is a matter to be addressed. Whether it's a disputable matter or a matter of evident sin, there is something to address in my brother. So seeing a speck in need of removal is not the hypocrisy that Jesus talks about as these, as verses 4 and 5 continue. You see the word hypocrite that he uses there in verse 5. Now, the hypocrite's error is his failure to apply to himself the criticism that he so meticulously applies to his brother. That's the problem. I'm applying a standard to you that I'm not applying to myself. We now start seeing why God is going to apply it for us. We're not applying it to our own hearts, so he'll do so. And he'll apply it in the same way we did. It's excusing in our lives what we see wrong in someone else's life. That's the hypocrisy that Jesus confronts. That's the rebuke that we are to receive. And it's usually something we're trying to overcome ourselves that bugs us most in others, isn't it? It's usually something that we're trying to overcome ourselves that bugs us most when we see it in others. It especially bugs us if we don't see them working to overcome it with the same sort of intentionality that we're working to overcome it in our lives. That's where a judgmental heart starts. I don't see you laboring to walk with the Lord. See, we compare ourselves with one another in order to feel better about what we are and about what we aren't. And we can judge pretty easily. Anybody whose conscience is sensitive in different areas or in different ways than ours is. Charles Price wrote this with such clarity in his commentary. Listen to his description. It is well known we often dislike most in others what is true of ourselves. Greedy people do not like greedy people. Selfish people are deeply irritated by selfish people. Proud people cannot stand proud people. The reason may be fairly obvious. They understand what these people are doing. And they subconsciously, if not consciously, are despising their own behavior, which they either refused or seem unable to deal with. So they condemn it in others. It's a symptom of their own guilt. Ouch. Ouch. That's God's Word coming to bear. But it's true, isn't it? 
It's so true, in fact, that I found while I was preaching this to my own congregation, I couldn't use any examples that I was aware of. They all hit a little too close to home. It's one you just have to reflect on personally, and that's going to be part of how we apply this passage today. It's one that you just need to reflect on personally. I would simply urge you with an open mind and an open heart to seek God on this matter. Take a moment to think of someone who is really annoying you right now, who's really a source of irritation in your life. It shouldn't take too hard, too long to come up with, with a name or face, right? Now, with an open mind and an open heart before God, check your own heart on that issue. Identify what it is in them that most troubles you and then honestly assess your heart before God to see whether that be present in your heart. That's the clearest way I can think of to suggest to respond to this illustration, to this issue that Jesus is addressing. Just test yourself and see. See if you're a hypocrite by applying a standard to somebody else that you're unwilling to apply in the same way to yourself. You see, we need to check our own hearts. We need to clear our own eye before we address a brother or a sister on some matter. And even then, we should guard our hearts against judgmentalism because it is so easy to slip into. It's again a passage we alluded to a few moments ago without naming it. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 that spells out this principle. There Paul wrote, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Tempted in the very area you're addressing. Come at it with humility. Come at it with poverty of spirit and mourning over sin. Your brother is in need. Don't be a source of condemnation to him. Be a means of grace. We'll come back to this a little bit more at the end. Word number four. Word number four is a possibility to prevent. Some people link verse six to verses one through five. Other people don't. I think there is a neat flow of thought here. Possibility prevent. That possibility is do not fail to be properly discerning while you seek to avoid fault finding. Do not fail to be properly discerning while you seek to avoid fault finding. That's why I think verse 6 really completes the thought of verses 1 through 5. Verse 6 is another one that has some picturesque imagery in it and a familiar statement. Do not give dogs what is holy... And do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. What does this mean? We can talk about some things that it doesn't mean. The Didache, for instance, a, a, a early 2nd century commentary on the apostles' teaching said that this verse is actually saying that baptism should be, I mean, Lord's Supper should be denied to those people who have not yet been baptized. Well, it tells you a little bit about how Seriously, they held baptism in the Lord's Supper in the second century, but it's not a good application of this text. Also tells us that, that ancient commentaries aren't always the best ones. Uh, oftentimes they are, but not always. What does it mean, though? What is it telling us? Don't, don't throw what is holy to the dogs. Don't cast your pearls before swine, lest they be trampled underfoot and they turn and attack you. 
Three things, three things that we should note that this means. First of all, notice the structure. The structure is A-B-B-A in verse 6. Right? So to read it in that way, do not give dogs what is holy, lest they turn and attack you. A and A, the beginning and the end of the verse. Now in the middle, B and B. And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot. Right? We start to see a little bit clearer imagery here. There is correlation between them, but they're two standalone pictures. Second, in both images, something spiritually precious is being mistreated, it's being desecrated by something unclean and despised. And with the dogs, the disciple himself is being attacked in return. Don't miss that. Third, I think it's no accident that Jesus chooses pigs and dogs here. Pigs epitomize unclean food. Dogs were used as a metaphor for the hated Gentiles. These are two power-packed illustrations, images that Jesus chooses here. But sometimes that can get in a way of understanding clearly what he means. He's not talking about only Gentiles. I believe he's talking about the fact that these illustrations are picturing vicious responses to the gospel itself and to its messengers from any people group whatsoever. It's not just the Gentiles. It's talking about vicious responses to the gospel and to the messengers of the gospel. When he's talking about not casting your pearls before swine lest they be trampled underfoot, not giving what is holy to the dogs lest they turn and attack you. After all, it is the gospel of the kingdom that is both holy and precious in the gospel of Matthew. That's what Jesus is preaching about. He's talking about the message of the kingdom. That's the holy and precious thing that we possess. Knowledge of eternal life. That which enables within us surpassing righteousness that we can't manufacture on our own. When Jesus sends out the twelve over in chapter 10 here of Matthew, He specifically told them not to force gospel witness on everyone. If somebody wasn't interested in hearing, don't share it there. Do you remember? Chapter 12, verse 10. I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 12. If any... I'm sorry, it's verse 14. Just reading it here. Verse 14 of chapter 10. If any will not receive you or listen to your words... Shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that town, that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable for the, on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Don't waste gospel witness on those who are unwilling to hear it. Be ready to share it whenever it can be shared. But don't cast your pearls before swine lest it be trampled underfoot. Don't, don't throw to the dogs what is holy. They'll turn and attack you. The gospel is of no use to these people. It doesn't put food on their tables. It doesn't feed their stomachs. So the gospel is no more useful than a pearl found by a pig while he's rooting through the slop trying to find a tasty morsel. It's an annoyance to the pig. The gospel is as warmly received as an attempt to cuddle a wild dog when he's hungry. That's the image Jesus uses. So what do we do with this? How does this relate to verses 1 through 5 specifically? Let me give you this statement. Even though we're not supposed to judge harshly, 
we still need to be properly discerning. I think that's what Jesus is teaching us. Even though we're not supposed to judge harshly, we still do need to be properly discerning of the people we're engaging with. We shouldn't confront a brother if our heart is wrong, and we shouldn't engage a stranger with the gospel if his heart is hard and cold. Now, this needs a little context too, doesn't it? It was Sinclair Ferguson in his very good commentary on this passage who said these words. He said, One of the lessons we need to learn is to live with the cost of our message being rejected. To live with the cost of our message being rejected. While that is heartbreaking, we are taught in Scripture that it will happen. Forewarned is forearmed. We are not taken by surprise by rejecters of the gospel. We do not mindlessly continue to offer Christ to people irrespective of their response. We do need to be properly discerning as kingdom dwellers in how we treat the precious and holy truth of the gospel that has been entrusted to us. Let's move quickly toward a conclusion here. What do we do with this? What do we do with this? I believe there is only one thing that we should do to begin our response to this passage today. Just one thing. But that one thing has two parts to it. The one thing that we need to do is to examine our own hearts. I said a few moments ago we'd get back to this at the end. That's what I would challenge you to do today, brothers and sisters in Christ. Examine your heart on the matters that Jesus is teaching about here. This is starting to move toward the culmination of what surpassing righteousness looks like. And surpassing righteousness is that which we need to be in the kingdom of God. Surpassing righteousness is that which is ours on this side of the cross by bowing our knee in repentance before the cross of Christ and saying, I am in need of a Savior. I am spiritually poverty-stricken and there is nothing I can do Nothing I can do to commend myself to God. I depend wholly and completely on God's grace to save me and to cleanse me and to implant His surpassing righteousness within me. That's my only hope. So I need to examine my heart to see if surpassing righteousness is characteristic of me, if it's taking root in my heart. Am I growing in likeness to my Savior? Because if not... I'm on the broad way that leads to destruction. That's coming up in just a few verses. If this surpassing righteousness that is the fruit of true repentance is present, however, and is in increasing measure, is growing and developing in my heart, then I am on that narrow way that leads to life. That narrow way that few find. This is exceedingly important to examine our hearts. What are the two fronts? First, to find and confess any form of self-serving judgmentalism toward others' sins or differences. That's the first thing I need to examine, to find any form of self-serving judgmentalism toward others' sins and differences and to confess that as sin, to forsake it, to repent, and to deal gently if persistently, with brothers and sisters in Christ. Second, and this is a little twisted, second, to find and confess any prideful indignation that has developed toward gospel witness. It'll take me a moment to explain what I mean by that. 
to find and confess any prideful indignation that has developed toward gospel witness. Our heart toward others is easy enough to understand, to identify. Regarding gospel witness here, what I'm talking about is going the extra mile with Jesus in verse 6 here and uncovering any form of refusal to witness that has grown out of discouraging or frustrating experiences in sharing the gospel in the past. Now, do you hear the connection? Jesus is saying, don't cast your pearls before swine. So essentially what he's saying is, don't continue casting the gospel out to those who don't want to hear it and who have violent reaction and opposition to it. Go look for the man of peace. Look for somebody whose heart is open on the Godward side, whose ear is inclined to hear the truth, and spend your time there. And don't forget about these folks. Continue praying for them. Be willing and ready to share whenever the opening is there. But don't keep casting your pearls before swine and causing the truth of God to be denigrated and trampled in the mud by those who have no appreciation or respect for it. Turn that around, though. Those who have experienced that sort of uh, response to the gospel can oftentimes decide that the best thing to do is not to cast pearls at all. Is not to share the truth. God's going to do what God's going to do. I don't need to be a proclaimer of the gospel. You know, it's been oft quoted by many. Uh, proclaim the gospel daily. Use words if you must. You know, that's a heartwarming little statement, but it's baloney. We proclaim the gospel in word and deed. It is through the preaching of the word that the work of God is accomplished. It is through the proclamation of God's gospel truth that hearts are opened, that eyes are opened, that the dead are raised to life by God Himself. Yes, saving believers, saving people is God's work. But proclaiming the truth is God's means. Romans 10. Because we may have had an experience similar to the pearl being trampled underfoot or the the dog turning and attacking, we think... Casting is not for me. I'm not a caster of pearls. I'll pray for those who do. You know what? Those who do need to be prayed for. Don't diminish that work. But we need to, we need to examine our hearts to find and confess any prideful indignation that has developed toward gospel witness because of negative experiences that we've had in doing it. Oh, I've got... Stories of people who continue to offend this direct teaching of verse 6 by continuing to cast their pearls before swine and dogs. A friend, a CPA downtown, a man with a promising career, but a real gospel edge, was just frustrated beyond words by the fact that he couldn't host a Bible study at a Northside YMCA. And so he kept leaving voicemail messages on the director's phone that got increasingly insistent and increasingly direct in his confrontation of her lifestyle as the basis upon which she wouldn't allow a Bible study as he perceived it. He ended up, based on one voicemail message, eventually being convicted of a felony hate crime and lost his professional credentials and is now doing part-time jobs to sustain himself in life. 
He didn't understand that there is a point at which you shake the dust off your feet and you move on. But how many stories, how many stories can we think of that illustrate turning that verse around and thinking because there are so many swine and dogs out there who don't have a heart for the gospel, therefore I don't cast. I don't cast. Friends, we don't have to look outside of our own chair to find a person that misses opportunities routinely and regularly to bear witness to the life-changing truth of the gospel, that that glorious kingdom righteousness that, that clothes us now because of our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that this world desperately needs to hear the, the reason that we are still here as believers in Christ to obey the Great Commission and to be proclaimers of that truth. Don't let those negative experiences turn you against regular, consistent sharing of the Gospel. Let's pray together, shall we? Oh, Father, I pray that You would do a work in our hearts. I pray that You would help us to be free of this self-exalting condemnation of others that seeks to make us look better to someone, who knows who. Certainly not to You, Father, because You've told us what Your standard is. Free us from that tendency, Lord. But also free us, I pray, to be consistent and regular and faithful proclaimers of Your Word of truth to those who desperately need to hear. Help us to be ones who, though not judging, are still properly discerning and are able to steer clear of circumstances where the gospel would not be well proclaimed, but to not forfeit every opportunity as a result. Father, make this group of believers faithful witnesses, exhibiting surpassing righteousness in their own hearts and minds and joyously applying that to their relationships with one another and to their proclamation of the truth in an ever-darkening world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.